0: Okay, we're ready to start in Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32, 1 to 21. This part will cover God's provision or God's protection and Jacob's means or Jacob's actions. Genesis 32, verse 1. We'll read a paragraph at a time. Verses 1 and 2. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him, And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Let's pause there and pray. Our Father, we are grateful that we can come as your people to study your holy word. We thank you for it. Thank you that it reveals you. It reveals our own nature and our need of salvation. Thank you also, Lord, that you have not left us to be aimless and pointless and meaningless in this world, but have given us your word to guide our life that we might arrive safely into your heavenly kingdom. Thank you for these provisions you've given to us. We pray, Lord, that we'll be encouraged by what we read and maintain our faith and endure until the very end. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 32, we pick up with Jacob returning to the land of Canaan. He's been away for twenty years in the land of the north, in the in the land of Haran, where some of his relatives lived. And up there, he has many provisions. He's got um, he has four wives and children from them, twelve at least, thirteen at least, from them at that at this point. And now God has instructed him that it's time to return. So this is what he's doing in chapter thirty-two. He is fearful of meeting Esau, his brother, who also lives in the land of Canaan or near the land of Canaan, and that will happen in chapter 33. Chapter 32 is this preparation to meet Esau and to return to the land of Canaan. After he dealt with an incident, a conflict with his relative Laban in chapter 31, he has now departed from Laban in peace. He is now arriving in the land of Canaan. But in his arrival in the land of Canaan, he has some uncertainties and some ways in which he's preparing himself to meet his challenges and a potential conflict. This is what we read about in chapter 32. In the first two verses, we see in verse 1, Jacob continued after his exchange and covenant with Laban. And it says, the angels of God met him. The angels of God met him just as he saw angels in chapter 28, 10 to 17. He sees angels now also when he departed from the land of Canaan in chapter 28, God's angels came to assure him of his uh, of God's protection of him and provision for him. And in the same way, now in chapter 32, God's angels are appearing here for his benefit. This is not an unusual occurrence in the book of Genesis for angels to appear, either to appear for judgment or to appear for protection and assurance. In Genesis chapter 3, we know that there were at least two angels that protected the way to the Garden of Eden so that no one would enter there. In Genesis chapter chapters 18 and 19, we have at least two angels, plus the Lord himself, who appears to Abraham and Sarah. And when they appear, they appear not only to assure Abraham of God's work in his life, continual work in his life, but also to announce the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which takes place in Genesis 19. Well, in this way here, these angels come to assure Jacob of God's Protection of him. And we note that he commemorates this place where it happened in verse 2 by calling it Mahanayim. Now, this word, this place, which becomes a city on the eastern side of the Jordan River, about 45 miles northeast of Jerusalem, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, in the land of Gad. Remember, Um, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh possess the eastern side. Well, this city ends up in the time of Joshua being in the tribe of Gad. And here he gives it this name. The name means two camps, or two companies, or two groups. That's what this name means, because he sees these two um, camps of angels. That's why he says, this is God's camp. We are confirmed by that because it says in verse 7 that he sent two companies of his own possessions forward. It says in verse 7, into two companies. Verse 8, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. And in verse 10, now I have become two companies. It's likely that these angels whether one angel for each company or a group of angels for each company, whatever the case may be, that there were angels there sent by God to protect him and to assure him of his presence. This is also the case in Hebrews 1.14. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Hebrews 1:14 and also Hebrews 13:2. Some have entertained angels without knowing it. In the case of Jacob in Genesis 28, he didn't know what he was about to experience. Probably also in the case of Lot in Genesis 19, he did not know initially that angels were approaching him until they actually did approach and start dialoguing with him. Well, this is the same with our situation. God does use angels still, according to Hebrews 1, 14 and thirteen two, to to aid us, to help us to observe what we are doing and even to warn us. Angels are. And we're not always um, knowledgeable of that fact. But just because we're not always aware or knowledgeable of that fact that an angel is here or there or helping us, the Bible says that that actually does occur. It does occur like that. Let's continue in verse 3. Verses 3 to 12. 3 to 12. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. And I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies." For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now... I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob. It says in verse 3, sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. In Genesis 36, this is where we will read of Esau, the patriarch, going away from the land of Canaan, where Jacob and his descendants were to inherit, and he migrates south and southeast of that land to what was then And since that time called the land of Edom, the country of Edom, and also the land of Seir or Mount Seir, because it was a mountainous area. And first it was known as Seir, and then it became known as Edom, the country. Occasionally in the scriptures, the prophets will use these as synonyms to describe the people who live there. They will say Esau, Edom and Seir, such as Obadiah, the prophet, does so. And even Malachi, the prophet, does Malachi 1, 1 to 5. Don't be confused by this terminology. Esau is mainly the name of Jacob's brother, the oldest of Isaac and Rebekah, the oldest son. That's his name primarily. Occasionally, it becomes a national name, the name of the country and the land, such as in Obadiah um, 8 and 9, and then also in Malachi 1, 1 to 5. But primarily, the land is either known as Edom or Seir. It doesn't tell us here how Jacob knew that Esau had already migrated. But he did migrate. We learn that in chapter 36. In chapter 36, verse 7, For their property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. This chapter is encompassing a description of what happened to Esau and his descendants. Well, because there were too many of his possessions, he left the land of Canaan, and migrated. Likely, just as Rebekah, his mother, had promised, she probably had sent a messenger to the north to confirm to Jacob that it was safe and all right for him to return, that Esau, his brother, had already left. Because it says in Genesis twenty-seven forty-five. She, his mother, is telling Jacob, until your brother's anger sub, uh, against you subsides and he forgets what he did to you, then I shall send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? It's likely that she sent a messenger to tell Jacob Esau has indeed left the land of Canaan and she knew that his anger, his desire to retaliate and murder Jacob, that at that that had disappeared, that that had subsided. So Jacob hears that and knows now that his brother doesn't live in Canaan, that it's safe for him to return. But in addition to what Rebecca said in chapter 32, we have also the word of God, the word of God, which we will mention. But before we reach there, verse 4, 32:4. He also commanded them saying, so he sends messengers, but he also commands the messengers saying, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now, and I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. These messengers sent to Esau, notice the way in which, the respectful way in which he addresses his brother. Though he is an unbeliever, and though he has fear that he might retaliate, he calls him, my Lord, verse 4, you shall say to my Lord Esau, and he calls himself your servant Jacob. He's being respectful, anticipating that there might be a conflict when he returns to Canaan. Furthermore, He says in verses four and five that he has ample provisions, ample provisions given to him by God. He has protection by the angels, but he has these provisions as well because the provisions are meant to tell Esau. Listen, I know I left a pauper, but now I have plenty. I left as a poor man, but now I am rich. So I'm not making contact with you because I need something from you. I'm telling you that I am self-sufficient. God has prospered me. So I just want to make sure everything's fine between us. And I'm not asking for anything from you. That would be the reason that he does this. Um, Then verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The messengers return with the message that your brother Esau is coming with 400 men. The verse doesn't say who these 400 men are. But two ancient translations of this passage say that included in these men are generals of armies included in this company of four are generals of armies. Naturally, if these men are wealthy, they are building up a, an army or a militia to protect themselves, right, from incursions and invaders. They're, they need to do that to protect themselves. And so, this is um, what the ancient translations say. However, even if we don't have those ancient translations, if you just hear, of Esau and 400 men, that itself, no matter who they are, since they belong to Esau, you would be afraid. It's natural to be afraid that these 400 men, why does he need 400? Why couldn't he just bring four or 10 men just to help out with his travels and make sure that he himself is safe in his travels? He doesn't need 400. So Jacob is naturally afraid. It says, greatly afraid and Distress. Now, at this point, someone might accuse Jacob and say that this is unjustified. It's wrong. And why might they say that? Because we're never supposed to be afraid. But in this case, if a real danger is present and fear comes up, there is a healthy fear that leads us to self-protection. Correct? And that kind of fear is not a sinful fear. Just like we learn when we are children that when we put our hand on the stove, we're going to be burned, right? Sometimes we have to first have that happen to us before we learn the lesson. So after that point, we have a healthy fear of putting our hand on the stove or on a hot pot, right? Then we start using pot holders. Then we don't pretend that everything's just fine, and play on the top of the stove all the time, right? So that's a healthy fear, and I think that's the healthy fear that Jacob has here. Remember, we've also called this section Jacob's means, or Jacob's actions, Jacob's um, responsibility. What Jacob needs to do, even though God in verses 1 and 2 assured Jacob that his angels would protect him, He still needs to act. He still needs to obey. He still needs to do what he needs to do to return to his country. And this is all in Scripture. This is throughout Scripture. Because we believe that God is sovereign, that he controls all things, he controls all of nature, he controls angels, he controls demons, he controls men, both righteous men and wicked men, he controls all of our thoughts and actions. They are all under His sovereignty, they are all ordained by Him. Correct? Yes. But that still doesn't mean that we don't do anything. We still have to wake up in the morning. We have to clean up. We have to go to work. We have to come back from work. Sure. Right? We have to buy the food in the market. We have to come home. We have to prepare it. We have to put it in our mouth. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread... We're not saying give us this day our daily bread from Matthew 6 and then and then just sit at home and wait for the bread to come. Nobody does that. Even people who believe in fatalism. And the Bible is not teaching fatalism, but even people who believe in fatalism, they don't live that way. They act. They act on the, the basis of common sense and their daily needs. They act. And that's the same here with Jacob. But Jacob is a man of faith. He understands this relationship between the sovereignty of God and the will of man or the responsibility of man. And this is what he's doing in verse 7. So what does he do in response? He divided the people who were with him, the flocks, herds, camels, into two companies because in preparation, verse 8, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape, which is strategy. It's it's military strategy, and that's fine and good for him to do that. It's not foolish. It's not a lack of faith. He's protecting himself. He's trying to protect as many of his provisions as possible, and this is what he does. But he also prays and calls upon God to fulfill his promises, See, he performs some actions and he's also praying at the same time. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. As God was faithful to Abraham and Isaac, he's calling on the same faithful God for himself. And notice in verse 9, he heard a word from God. Not only did he hear, likely, from a messenger from Rebekah assuring him about what was happening on the ground in the land of Canaan, but he also had this revelation or this word from God in verse 9 where God told him, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. God told him that. He's declaring it in his prayer. So what God assured him and commanded him to do is, He is praying in accordance with that word, which is not a new concept in Scripture. If we read the Psalms and we read the prophets, we see that often the prophets are citing verses from the Psalms. Psalms that they sang, Psalms that they memorized, they repeat those words and promises to God in their prophecies. And even the threats of punishment against wicked people, they bring those up in their oracles, And that's the same here with Jacob, reminding God of what he said and that God said, I will prosper you. God promised prosperity to Jacob and he's relying upon that. He's believing that and acting in accordance with it. Further, verse 10, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. He left with... A staff only, and now he has two companies of possessions. He is correct, is he not? He's unworthy of everything God provided. What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Uh, James 1, 17, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow every good thing comes from above a man can receive nothing unless it has been granted him from above so the scriptures very clear about this teaching and this is what jacob understood he was nothing he is nothing apart from god granting good things to him Verse 11, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. This is a genuine request because he doesn't know the intentions of Esau. He doesn't even know what God intends by bringing Esau with the 400 men. God said, I will prosper you. God said, return But he doesn't know if that return is first going to be met with conflict, first going to be met with bloodshed, first going to be met with an argument or a quarrel between him and his brother before he does, in fact, settle in the land of Canaan. He doesn't know that. So according to what he does know, he he requests of God for deliverance that Esau would not even raise a finger Against Jacob and Jacob's people. Then verse 12. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Here again, based on what God had promised earlier to Jacob in, in chapter 28. Chapter 28, for example, in verse 14. 28, 14 is a reiteration of promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac. So Jacob knows that in due time, and he is about 100 years old now, in due time, God will fulfill his word. That took extreme patience. Now, his life is in jeopardy, and he's reminding God of what he promised, that he would become a multitude in the earth. His, His descendants would possess the land of Canaan. And not only that, but his single descendant, Christ, would come into the world through the tribe of Judah. And we learn this in Genesis 49, that Jacob knew. In Genesis 49, 10, Jacob knew that his son Judah would be the ancestor of Christ. He knew that because he prophesied that before his death in chapter 49. So he knows all of these promises about the coming Christ. Jacob does. Now, verses 13 to 21. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau: 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me, and put a space between groves. And he commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord uh, Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third, and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, then afterward I will see his face. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. In this case, he's presenting this gift to Esau. He has an enormous amount of wealth, as we can tell from these animals in verses 14 to 15. 14 and 15, how they are mentioned here. If this is a gift, this is certainly not uh, half of all of his possessions or all, most of his possessions. It must be just a portion of his possessions. This is how wealthy God made him in 20 years. He was very, very wealthy in 20 years. And so he sends these droves or these groups one by one in front. He sends them one by one in front. And in order for Esau to see them and to have a confirmation that Jacob is indeed wealthy, he is not trying to snooker me to get something out of me as his big brother. He's not trying to do anything like that. He has been a very prosperous man, blessed by God, very diligent man. And now he has this gift he's presenting to me. We might wonder and ask, is it appropriate when he says in verse 20, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. I will appease him with the present. Is it wrong when you suspect a problem to prepare yourself in kindness and uh, going out of your way to present a gift to help the situation, to alleviate any stress and conflict? In and of itself, is it ethically wrong to do so? If we think of it that way, then this isn't wrong. But sometimes interpreters see this as Jacob being coy and clever in trying to do something in a very sneaky way because Jacob is only concerned about saving his his skin. He's only concerned about saving himself. He doesn't care about anything else because he's a deceptive man and he's a deceitful uh, uh, a, a crook one who stole blessings. And this is just another way that Jacob is manipulating the situation and deceiving Esau. Well, if we have that kind of a negative view of Jacob, I I could see how that is here manifested. However, we shouldn't assume that with Jacob. We shouldn't assume it because he is a man of faith. We just saw that in the previous uh, paragraphs, that he is a man of faith, he does trust God, and the whole of Scripture considers him that after his conversion, considers him a man of God. So why would it be that we would um, off the bat initially suspect Jacob at every turn? I don't think we should do that. And besides, do we not also, when we are trying to make sure that everything is okay between us and someone else. We don't come, tr- when we're trying to make sure that there is peace and reconciliation between us, we don't come to the meeting uh, with an angry look, uh, lobbing accusations, right? We, we come with a calm, exp- exp- um, a calm demeanor. We come complimenting or greeting the person. We come sitting down, would you like a glass of water? Would you like something else? Have you eaten lunch yet? Let's go eat lunch. We do things like that, right? Why? Not because we have ill intent, but because we're trying to assuage any, any tension in the situation. That's what we're trying to do. And then deal with it just logically, just with rational argumentation rather than with hyped up emotions. If we come prepared to a situation... And this is, I think, what is going on here, that that's what Jacob is doing. It's not wrong to bring a gift in order to make sure that there is peace between us and someone else. Of course, if we do things deceptively and and be manipulative, then that is wrong. But I don't think Jacob is doing that. He's just trying to make sure the situation is calm and cool. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.